welcome to International History Now, a podcast exploring topical issues from a historical perspective. I'm Dina Gusenova, a historian teaching at the London School of Economics. And I'm Jorgos Yanakopoulos, a historian based at the LSE and City University. Today, our episode focuses on the history of dissenters and dissent in politics, from the Quakers to Amnesty International. Also, today we are experimenting with a new feature. We're bringing you some songs by the great Caribbean British folk singer Cy Grant, brought to you thanks to the kind permission from his family and the London Metropolitan Archives. The immediate occasion for our conversation is a combination of political and intellectual events. In 2021, Amnesty International celebrated its 60th anniversary. Since then, the organization has played a key role in mobilizing international support for political dissenters and dissidents. This protection often revolves around the act of assigning the status of a prisoner of conscience to a protected individual. But the use of this status has recently also attracted controversy, most recently in May 2021, when Amnesty first gave the jailed Russian opposition politician Alexei Navalny the status of a prisoner of conscience, but then withdrew it two weeks later, apparently in response to new evidence of his nationalist views, which he held more than 10 years ago. But we wanted to take a step back from these recent events and find out what the early creators of the term prisoners of conscience had actually meant by it and what motivated them to institutionalize the status legally. With our guests today, we also want to go all the way back to the early modern history of political dissent, associated with such figures as the Quaker William Penn, who had been imprisoned several times in the Tower of London for his religious views, but later in life founded a colony in America which was to become one of the United States, Pennsylvania. In addition to William Penn, we also want to discuss the story of Peter Benenson, the lawyer who founded Amnesty International in post-World War II Britain. And with us to discuss the long history of dissent in politics are Tom Buchanan, professor in British and European history at the Department for Continuing Education at the University of Oxford. And he's the author of the recently published Amnesty International and Human Rights Activism in Post-War Britain, 1945 to 77, which came out with Cambridge University Press in 2020. And Andrew Murphy, who is professor for political science at Virginia Commonwealth University, and just published in 2021 the political writings of William Penn for the Cambridge texts in the history of political thought. He is also, of course, the author of a biography of William Penn, which came out with Oxford University Press in 2018. Tom, thank you for joining this program. Uh, you've written extensively on human, post-war human rights in Britain and also on, obviously, the Amnesty International, its origins. And I would like to begin this by asking you to share with us your views about how this organization emerged and the stories of some of its key protagonists. Well, thank you um, for inviting me to, to join the podcast. Yeah, so um, as, uh, as Dina mentioned, I've been working for, for some years really on the history of amnesty. And I, I've always been particularly interested in the early years. It's actually formed um, following the publication of a newspaper article on the 28th of May, 1961, in which Peter Benenson, the, the lawyer, uh, identified uh, what he called the forgotten prisoners, who were these prisoners of conscience, uh, mainly in Eastern Europe, the developing world, and less so in, in the Western world, it has to be said. So the, the article was published on the 28th of May and uh, received a remarkable response. So many people wrote in 
to ask Benenson how could they help. And that was really the basis of it as uh, what becomes really, you might say, a, a popular movement with many volunteers. So I think it's the other important point about Amnesty early on is that the article was published uh, worldwide. And so we find people around the world writing in. And that becomes the basis then of not only uh, a voluntary group uh, in Britain, but also in many uh, countries uh, in Europe initially, and then latterly spreading uh, really around the world. So uh, this act of Benenson emerges from a tradition of British internationalism? Benenson had been building up to this over uh, many years. Um, his first political activity, as far as I can tell, was when he was at school at Eton, when he led a committee in support of the Spanish Republic during the Spanish Civil War, which is the topic I've mainly uh, studied during my career. So that's really got me what got me hooked initially. And really during his, his life, he, um, uh, he moved towards this identification really with political imprisonment in particular as, as a way of tackling issues that we would nowadays think of as human rights issues, but were generally not identified as such back in the, the 40s and 50s. Don't forget the Universal Declaration was only uh, published in, in 1948. Um, and it took quite a long time for the Universal Declaration to kind of shape the landscape in the way that I think uh, we would we would be familiar with today. So Benenson's early interests after the end of the Second World War were in attending political trials in Spain, where he would go on behalf of organizations such as the Trade Union Congress and groups like that, and trying to um, do his best to help prisoners, political prisoners in Spain, to get a fair trial, maybe to secure their release and so on. And then in the course of the 1950s, his interest broadened out into a succession of organizations that he sets up, probably the most, uh, the best known being the organization known as Justice, which he set up in 1956, which was really a campaigning organization for lawyers to uh, campaign in Britain, but on behalf of those suffering from um, unfair imprisonment or uh, abuses of political power, both in Britain and, and elsewhere. And it started off with an idea that uh, lawyers uh, should take an interest across the political parties in those who are suffering uh, political persecution. And what he seized upon was the fact you had, at the same time, political trials in Hungary after the suppression of the Hungarian uprising, and also the uh, treason trials in South Africa of African nationalists. And that was really the germ of the idea, I think, that by campaigning, as it were, for people who were imprisoned or persecuted across the Cold War divide would be the way of uh, kind of galvanizing um, interest, uh, in, in this case, through the legal profession. And then later on, uh, in terms of uh, more of a lay, uh, non-specialist you know, uh, non uh, volunteer base. My question here is the reception of this organization in le across the left-wing political mm -hmm. spectrum in Britain. Are there any issues there? How is the early beginnings of what will then become Amnesty yeah. uh, discussed? Well, it certainly has its roots on the left. I mean, Peter Benenson was a Labour Party candidate who stood unsuccessfully on four occasions in the 1950s. And he did have links uh, to the left. But I think one of the things that he came to realise very quickly was that one of the major flaws with this kind of campaigning was precisely, as he put it, that like identified with like. You know, people on the left campaigned on behalf of imprisoned left-wingers and people on the right campaigned on behalf of imprisoned right-wingers, and there was no sort of universality to it. And so I think the, you know, the, the kind of breakthrough that he makes, you might say intellectually, is a very small thing in a way, but was to realise that 
you, you shouldn't campaign on behalf of someone because of their politics, but because they were prisoners. And, and that was the breakthrough that he made in 1961. And it really emerges, I think, out of, um, I mean, he goes through a period of intense self-reevaluation in the late 1950s and early 1960s. So first of all, as I've mentioned, he had been unsuccessful in his uh, parliamentary aspirations. And he, he doesn't quite break with the Labour Party, but he puts it behind him. And he, he no longer is pursuing a political career. But also he uh, converts to Catholicism of a very um, intense kind, actually. And that's very evident in his letters written at this, at this time. But also he is uh, becoming disenchanted with the legal profession. So he was a barrister. But by the late 1950s, even the organisation Justice that he'd set up, he's come to feel that lawyers are inherently conservative, cautious people, and that they're not really going to make the sorts of initiatives that he's looking for. So in his um, correspondence around uh, 1960, 61, you can see there, it all kind of begins to come together with this idea that what he needs is to to find some, some way of bringing lay people together to campaign around human rights and the key starting point is this, his interest in political imprisonment uh, in order to achieve very specific goals, i.e. getting people out of jail. It mm-hmm. seems striking that, that the, the scope of um, kind of relevant geographical intervention, in a sense, for amnesty is from the beginning really quite large. And one, might, one could initially think of it as a kind of uh, politics of the left, but as you said, not of the left. Mm-hmm. But then you can also see that it's sort of within spaces somehow abandoned by the British Empire or somehow mm-hmm. affected by the uncontrolled disintegration of the British Empire, or however one might call um, situations like like Cyprus. But then the intervention in Algeria mm-hmm. as well, the French Empire. Um, how how can we make sense of the geographical spread of their of their activities? Well, it, it's certainly true that in the late 1950s he he does take up questions of colonial violence in a very um, you know, very striking way. So, uh, as you mentioned, he um, personally intervenes in Cyprus uh, to assist people who have been imprisoned, um, who are campaign, you know, campaigners mm-hmm. against British rule, but also taking up questions of torture and allegations of torture there. And that's where he makes uh, a very important connection with uh, another campaigner called Eric Baker, who was uh, a Quaker um, and. Uh, uh, Baker had a long-standing interest in Greece and Cyprus and Turkey, and the two of them work, began to work together. And that that was really the team, you know, that was at the core of the founding of Amnesty. But uh, the other question that he gets involved with, as, as you mentioned, is is Algeria and uh, the again the allegations of torture there. And he publishes a book uh, which is called Gangrene, which is basically the um, English publication of a book that had been banned in France and a collection of other essays. His point being to say that um, this wasn't just a French problem, but also a British problem. For instance, there are uh, chapters in it about the suppression of the Mau Mau rebellion and that kind of thing. Having said all of that, I personally don't think it's by any means purely a, a, a post-imperial question, because if you look at the um, the masthead of the letter, sorry, the article that he publishes in May 61, you'll see he's very, very keen to really offer a kind of representative sample of famous political prisoners from around the world, from behind the Iron Curtain, Um, you know, uh, uh, in the case of of, uh, Greece, uh, you have imprisoned trade unionists who are mentioned there. 
And, and that's even more apparent in the book that he published soon after Amnesty was launched, uh, which is called Persecution 1961. And it is nine um, case studies of people imprisoned for their beliefs around the world. And that includes people from, uh, from China, uh, Romania, Soviet Union, the Philippines, uh, colonial Africa, uh, the United States. So really, his idea was to to think to conceive of political imprisonment really in in a global sense, and to think about the possibility of people being imprisoned or persecuted for their beliefs in in any country. And, and in fact, he was quite hard pressed, in some cases, to find uh, prisoners um, to write about. You know, to make the case about, say, the United States. You know, he didn't feel there were as many political prisoners as in, say, you know, the Soviet Union. But he he does have to work on that and and find examples as well. So I think that was the, he was, he was adopted, a, I'd say, a global framework, although he does pursue issues of post-colonial abuse, uh, particularly closely, say, in the mid-1960s. It, it struck me as we're discussing now, uh, you know, we're discussing mainly male figures. Now, you know, and I think, Tom, you've written about this, mm-hmm. the kind of, there's a clear gender dynamic that's going on in Amnesty International in its early beginnings, yeah. right? And I yeah. wonder if you can say a word on that. Um, I, I mean, as you say, uh, really, uh, the key figures in Amnesty, certainly in its in these early phases, tended to be male, and not just male, but all from a very similar background as well. They all tended to be public school educated and uh, Oxbridge educated, and uh, many of them had come to meet each other maybe during the Second World War or Bletchley Park or those sorts of things. So those kinds of relationships were constructed. Uh, over a long period of time. And it's not surprising then, I suppose, when Benenson sat down to not only to, to recruit volunteers, but also to construct a kind of core team. They tended to be people of that uh, of that background. And, and actually, one does find in the archives, you know, really examples where I think women clearly, you know, were not given a fair opportunity, really, to to take leadership roles. And one or two exceptions to that, there was a, a barrister called Hilary Cartwright, who uh, plays an important role early on, but she then goes to Germany and ultimately to Geneva. There was also a woman who I discovered uh, really through Benenson's personal papers, who I don't think has been recorded at all, called Clara Urquhart. And she was someone who um, became very involved in supporting Benenson, but was so self-effacing that no trace seems to have survived or barely any trace in the Amnesty archives. So again, perhaps a hint that there might be more there you know, than, than meets the eye. But uh, fundamentally, the uh, not all of the volunteers, but many of the volunteers were were women, and that's certainly, uh, I think, an important element of that. What's new about Amnesty is is the way it provides opportunities for for women to become involved in a certain kind of campaigning that perhaps doesn't have the traditional, you might know, say, the you know the traditional rather male dominated idea of uh, you know a trade union style or Labour Party style uh, campaigning. Um, and uh, indeed, many of the women who left records of their activism uh, themselves had very strikingly had some of them were refugees from Germany. Uh, both, you know, some of them were, were German Jewish refugees who had come over as children. And then in the 60s, after many years of perhaps not being involved in politics, suddenly found, you know, that the, the, the article that Benenson published really kind of struck a chord and suddenly they want to get involved in campaigning. It's very remarkable how, you know, this happens and people who've maybe spent, you know, many years really wanting almost to avoid being involved in campaigning suddenly feel drawn into it. So there is something definitely interesting going on there. The term dissenter describes the experience of religious oppression under different old regimes in Europe. 
In more recent times, dissent has been associated with the activism of political dissidents under different oppressive regimes, from the Soviet Union or modern Russia to Myanmar and China. But what's the relationship between faith and political dissidents in a historical perspective? At what point does the collision of dissenters with the cultural and legal system of their societies render them from powerless victims into powerful speakers and politicians? We are in the post-war moment. We are in the 50s, we are in the 60s. But obviously these precepts, these concepts have a long history. And I want to bring uh, to our discussion now Andrew and uh, his work you know, on, on religious dissent, on uh, William Penn. So help us make sense of the bigger, broader historical lineages of questions of dissent. Sure. Thank you. Um, well, it's, it's, it's great to be with you. And I think this term that we've been talking about with regard to amnesty, uh, prisoners of conscience, um, clearly it foregrounds a particular kind of prisoner, um, someone who's connected in some way with conscience. Um, and so my own sort of career has spent a lot of time looking at the history of the political campaign uh, for liberty of conscience, which really does, in the Anglo-American uh, case, take off in the mid Seventeenth uh, century, um, but it really does, uh, I think, um, suggest that we think a bit about what we mean by the term conscience itself. Um, and as a historical matter, uh, the campaign for liberty of conscience and the idea of conscience was deeply connected with religion. That's where the first and some of the most powerful uh, early modern thinkers located their their concern. Um, but but it's also important to point out that over the intervening time period, um, the notion of conscience has grown beyond or detached from what we might call um, the traditional religious uh, groundings. But the idea of uh, living a life that is uh, uh, consistent with one's deepest held values, uh, being able to live a life of integrity um, without facing overt punishment by the state or, or hostility and violence from your neighbors. I think that's something that's really uh, the, the, the ability to, to speak out on the things that are sort of your deepest commitments. I think that's something that does kind of unify uh, the early modern thinkers and folks like Penn and others that, I was, that I've been studying uh, and the kinds of folks that uh, Tom was talking about as well. And can we um, just continue our kind of excursion now into the deeper prehistory of this, the, the dissenters and ask you to paint a little bit of a picture of Penn's world in Restoration England, like the formative period? Well, there's all sorts of things to learn from the Restoration. Um, uh, it... it, it it really does sit at a remarkably important historical juncture um, coming in the wake of uh, the Civil War and, and the Cromwellian regime. And that's, I really think, I think something to go back to. One of the really important things in the history of dissent is, this, is the, the 1640s during the English Civil War, when a couple of things happened that kind of set the stage for a lot of what follows. Um, there was the breakdown of political authority, of course, which meant that the, the, the political restrictions on religious gatherings were lessened. Um, there was a breakdown of press censorship, uh, which enabled uh, really a, a, a remarkable proliferation of uh, of, liter of political and religious literature. Anyone who's ever taken a, a deep dive into the 1640s pamphlet literature knows that it just it goes on and on and on. Um, and that's the historical origin of the Quakers and many of the sects that that proliferate. And the Quakers are one that has had a remarkable success in perpetuating themselves for now 300 plus years um, and perpetuating themselves in ways 
that enable them to make a, um, a public showing or maintain a public profile really far, uh, that far transcends their actual numbers. There were never uh, that many Quakers, but they were enormously effective. They were very organized um, and they've been able to kind of perpetuate themselves as real central players in movements for, uh, for justice, not simply 17th century liberty of conscience, but uh, the abolition movement, uh, temperance movement, civil rights, the peace movement, um, and so on. But the the restoration period more specifically is when Penn comes uh, to maturity. Um, it's a period of time after this ferment of the 1640s and 50s, where there's a, an attempt to kind of put the lid back on the pot. And the, the, the movement for religious toleration and liberty of conscience becomes increasingly philosophically sophisticated and sort of organized, um, but it's polit- politically quite ineffective. There, there are numerous proposals for toleration acts and, and, and the mitigation of persecution throughout the 1660s and 70s. And they all go basically nowhere because parliament is restricted to Anglicans. Therefore, they're not going to vote to do anything uh, to undermine the Anglican church's uh, authority. Tom has a question. Why don't you? Uh, yeah, no, I just wanted to to sort of add something to what Andrew's just said, because um, a lot of the attention with Amnesty has been on Peter Benenson. And he's clearly, a, you know, he's this... I, in my book, I tried to give more attention to Eric Baker because he brings in this kind of tradition that Andrew's just been talking about. And in fact, this term prisoners of conscience um, probably was coined by him, not by uh, Benenson. I mean, Benenson describes the kind of thing he's he's interested in, but it's Baker says, you know, this is this is how you've got to frame it. And um, I think the other interesting thing to say about Baker is that he, he wrote a series of articles in 1960 in uh, The Friend, which was the standard uh, journal of the, the Quakers. And in those articles, he is really... Um, Saying that the Quaker movement has reached, a, in his view, a bit of a bit of a turning point, a bit of a crossroads. He says that you know they've um, been very involved in the peace movement and that kind of thing, but you know he's worried that as they move into the sixties, uh, dissent has kind of gone elsewhere, and he's not really sure what they stand for anymore. And he's very conscious that it's it's actually a very small group, as Andrew was saying. I think it's only about maybe twenty five thousand people. You know, it's a a small group, and his argument is if if they don't have a cause, they're nothing. You know. And and it's very striking then that, you know, if you run the story onwards, it's uh, Baker, who, again, I argue in, in my book, is the one who really who really runs with the uh, anti-torture campaign in the late 1960s. And looking at the speeches that he, he goes around the country giving speeches at all the Quaker meetings. And the point he makes there is precisely to link it back to the abolitionist movement, you know, of the 1780s, 1790s, and it's, uh, you know, he's absolutely saying, you know, we've got to find a new, you know, a new spark, you know, a new abolitionist uh, spark that will, you know, bring the, the the movement to the fore. So a lot of this is played out in very much, and you might say, almost the, um, you know, for Quakes at least, in the historical milieu that Andrew has been describing. And if I could just sort of build on that as well, I mean, the idea, I think that that the idea of, of referring to a, an individual or a group of individuals as prisoners uh, of conscience. Um, that word conscience does a lot of work in in the kind of rhetorical power because um, the one of the the fundamental founding tenets of Quakerism from its 1640s and 50s roots was that there is something of God in every person, um, and this was a radical egalitarian claim. It wasn't always fully realized in their practices, but it was a radical theological claim. Every one of us has a conscience. There is something of God in each of us, which ma- which makes each of us. Um, um, 
the image of God. And so um, the idea of conscience being a, a, a property or a possession of, of all individuals um, means that in some ways any of us could become a prisoner of conscience at any given point, depending on which society we find ourselves living in and so on. And so I think that was sort of a, a, a powerful move to kind of um, uh, to, to put that, that, that term conscience into or reinsert it maybe uh, into the sort of the public conversation around these issues. Yes, and it's quite a problematic one in some ways because um, early on there's a big scandal within Amnesty about the status of Nelson Mandela because early on Amnesty had um, supported Mandela. Um, But then in 64, when the ANC adopts the armed struggle against uh, the apartheid regime, that poses acute problems for Amnesty. And in fact, they end up having to, uh, as it were, take him off the list of prisoners of conscience because of his adoption of the armed struggle, which has always been one of the core principles. And obviously, many people in Amnesty were very unhappy about that. I think with hindsight, I would say probably it was the right thing to do because that was how the movement had been set up, that they couldn't, they couldn't defend those who advocated the use of violence in you know, whatever form. And it certainly, it certainly helped Amnesty, I think, in the 70s, when, for instance, in Germany, you had certain Amnesty groups who wanted to adopt the uh, Bader-Meinhof group as prisoners of conscience. And I think it helped them that they'd taken this principled position over Mandela. But also, it's worth adding that they, they continued to support Mandela, but simply not as a, as a prin- prisoner of conscience. But... Um, I mean, with hindsight, obviously that looks looks like a bad decision. But I think in the context of trying to start a movement on the basis of a, of, a, of this idea of a principle, it probably made sense. At one level, it seems like there's something in common here, um, both from the from the sort of late 17th, 18th century to the 20th century, that um, that the groups that are interested in um, protecting dissenters or the dissenters themselves, that at one level they're extremely disenchanted with the law or the system they are confronted by, but at the same time, they also realize it's their best bet to make their case that they need a legal framework or they need to be lawyers in a sense, even though they're disenchanted lawyers. So what's going on with that strange ambiguity? Because I, I see they, they have other alternatives. They, they can apply to, they can appeal to faith alone somehow, or maybe to biblical, I don't know, sources or something. I mean, why do they keep thinking in terms of legal arguments and not just arguments from faith or scripture or something? Well, one way to look at this is to look at Penn's specific uh, uh, history. So in 1670, the year he turns 26, um, two things happen to him. One is he publishes a book called The Great Case of Liberty of Conscience, which is a very straightforward set of arguments about the philosophy and the theology and the, and the economics and the politics, all sorts of philosophical and political arguments for Um, ending the punishment of uh, dissenters. The other thing that happens is that he goes on trial, he gets arrested. And that's, this is where he really becomes a national figure. I think at some point you cite William Penn, and I quote, the question is not barely this, whether heretics or no heretics, but whether a heretic should be persecuted into a disclaiming of his error. The question is not whether I'm guilty of this indictment, but whether this indictment be legal. Right. And this gets to, again, I'm not a lawyer, um, but this is a distinction between um, uh, proceeding on the basis of laws or facts. So the, the, the judge is saying to the jury, was he at the place doing what, what we said he's doing? Um, Penn says, that's not the only question. The, only, the question isn't, what was I doing? The question is, um, was what I was doing illegal? Um, and according to his reading of Magna Carta and the rights of Englishmen and, and Christian theology and all the rest, um, the argument becomes, well, you can make this law, you can make any law you want that doesn't make 
doesn't make the law just, doesn't make it right. And, he's, and he directly appeals to the jury at some of the most dramatic lines in the, uh, in the trial. He directly appeals to the jury and says, if you value your rights, you must, uh, you must vote to acquit. Uh, and so the, the jury continues to acquit him. The judge holds the jury um, overnight. Um, it's, a great, it's a great piece of, of political drama, which then really does pave the way for Penn for the rest of that decade to become one of the really the best, well, uh, best and uh, most well-known dissenters uh, in England. Referring to the question of drama and campaigns and organized campaigns, right, and representing uh, uh, you know, the points of the dissenters, I want to fast forward this to the 1960s, 1970s moment. And I'd like to ask Tom if he wants to share some thoughts on how Amnesty International begins these kinds of campaigns uh, that bring a new, uh, as well, element of drama in, in, in matters of uh, conscience, etc. Yeah, no, that's a very uh, important point to bring in. It's interesting that you have these three major campaigning organizations that are all set up within a few years of each other. You've got the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament um, and the Campaign uh, Against uh, Apartheid in South Africa. And also you've got Amnesty uh, set up very close together. But Amnesty is by far the most original of those organizations. I mean, the CND relied mainly on fairly traditional forms of popular protest, you know, demonstrations, marches, uh, Trafalgar Square full of banners, that kind of thing. Uh, the campaign against uh, the anti-apartheid, what became the anti-apartheid movement, uh, was using the idea of the boycott, which itself had its roots in, uh, it goes far back, the abolitionist movement. But amnesty was different because amnesty was more of a, as I was saying, a, a kind of lay mobilization. Um, and it relied much more on, I would say, very modern tools of campaigning. Um, in particular, uh, Benenson, I think, was very good at understanding the value of uh, images. Um, he, he, he understood the value of, of slogans and phrases and, uh, you know, the, um, the way that certain images of the, you know, the, the candle in barbed wire or, or certain phrases could could become very powerful. And and he, he actually, you know, he hires PR advisors very early on and that kind of thing. But the one of the things he does, which is I think is important more generally, is to revive Human Rights Day. So um, 19, 10th of December of 1948 was the date of the UN declaration. And um, really throughout the 1950s, that date had languished. No, no one had done very much about it. And it's actually Amnesty that revives that and says, this is a date, you know, when we, we must uh, mark the occasion. And they, it's a very, uh, very kind of choreographed set of events they have there, culminating in a, it, it, something at St. Martin's in the field, which is the great centre for dissent in London, uh, and has been for for many decades, and they have a a ceremony there involving uh, uh, the young actress uh, Julie Christie and the um, the, the the famous um, uh, West Indian actor and singer Cy Grant, and they're symbolically bound together with cords that are then burnt through with the amnesty candle, and it's a uh, you know the photographs of it really do do capture the sort of symbolism of this thing incredibly well. By the rivers of Babylon. Sai Grant had been part of the earliest founding moment of Amnesty, which was a public prayer for freedom and human rights held at St. Martin and the Fields in London in 1961. For it was there that they asked us, the captives for songs, 
Grant was married to Dorit Kastnerova, who was the sole survivor in her Jewish-Czech family of the Theresienstadt ghetto. This is just to highlight the kind of transnational connections and awareness of injustice shared by the amnesty enthusiasts of this first generation. Grant's repertoire included not only classical psalms, of course, but he was also a master of the Caribbean genre of calypso. In fact, in the late 1950s and the early 60s in Britain, he appeared daily on the BBC's Tonight programme, singing the news in the style of calypso. Uh, I'd like to sing an authentic West Indian calypso, not one of the commercial ones. This one is about a raid by the police on a religious meeting which is forbidden to be held in the streets. The calypsonian who's on the spot absconds with a collection plate in the confusion of the raid. Our friends, hey misery, I heard a noise in me bachi one Sunday. Our friends, hey misery, I heard a noise in me bachi one Sunday. So I run and open the jealousy. I really thought me eyes deceiving me. See a man with a Bible and a candle in his hand preaching about the rod of correction. Glory, mama, glory, and the Lord send Moses on the mountain high, Baba. Glory, mama, glory, and if so be the Lord's command. Glory, mama, glory, I'm this little ten thousand of Philistines. Glory, mama, glory, and the run, run, run to the river of Jordan. Well, as far as I remember, I run and wake up my neighbor so early in the morning. The dogs in the yard they didn't stop barking, so I run and pull up my pajama. Only in Sully I join in the number with my Bible, my ashes, and my little holy water. Glory, Mama, glory, and the Lord's enemies on the mountain high, Baba. Glory, Mama, glory, and the Missou be the Lord's command. Glory, Mama, glory, and the Sue Gentiles and the Philistines. Glory, Mama, glory, and the run, run, run to the river of Jordan. What makes the thing sweeter? You know, when Amnesty was set up, there's one corner of London where they all came together, which was basically the Strand, because that was near the old Fleet Street and all the journalists in their in their pubs. And then you had the uh, the Royal Courts of Justice and all the, the inns of court and all the lawyers. And then you had the academics, you know, who are the area specialists. And, and Benenson, again, is very good at bringing them all together. And uh, so um, I, I do think there is something very new and very modern about Amnesty, that it doesn't require actually a large... Uh, necessarily a large base of support. I mean, it's not going to go out and fill the streets of London with demonstrators. But what it can do is is take over the uh, the cultural high ground, um, you know, television, the newspapers, and so on, and and get these people who have volunteered their interest to do something about it. They're writing letters to um, on behalf of political prisoners around the world. They, they use this thing called the Rule of Three. So you'd a, a, any group would have to adopt a prisoner from the east, from the west, and also from the developing world. You know, to make sure there was no inherent sort of bias within the uh, the organisations. Was there anything in the um, political language, political discourse of these British actors you're talking about mm. that may gesture to this longer, how to put it, special relationship of England with liberty and dissent? <laughs> Did they gesture at all to that? Uh, dimension. Um, well, I think I think they they did. I mean, it's certainly true that when the first attempt at writing some kind of history of amnesty was made in 1981, when uh, a series of interviews were carried out with all of the people or surviving people who had been involved in setting up amnesty to mark the 20th anniversary, and one of the questions they were all asked was, you know, why did it happen then, and why did it happen in England? 
And then you get all sorts of very, you know, charming responses about, you know, the, you know, the the uniqueness of, of the English culture and, and so on. And clearly, you know, many of them harked back to that. But I think there was also a kind of bit of a tongue in cheek thing of, of saying that actually, you, you know, this didn't necessarily have to happen in England. You know, <laughs> um, I mean, what's interesting, I think, is, I mean, the, the amazing thing about Amnesty is that it's one thing to set up. Um, a new voluntary organization and to think it's going to succeed in your own country. But to also launch it as an international organization and think it's going to succeed is is almost kind of beyond uh, belief, you know, and the fact it does take off, you know, it does start off in England, but then it spreads in interesting ways to very strong, um, uh, very strong sections in Germany, where, of course, it to some extent coincides with the Cold War and the divided Germany of that time. Uh, it spreads to Scandinavia and to some extent dovetails with uh, Swedish and uh, Norwegian interests in, in the developing world, in anti-apartheid and so on. Uh, later on to America, but not really until probably the nineteen, the late 60s and 70s. So, so far, it seems in our conversation that there is an element of historical, well, accuracy in terms of the, the idea of the prison of, yeah, being a prison of conscience kind of emerging in the 17th, 18th centuries is kind of revived um, in this post-war moment and and there are certain gestures towards these sort of past precedents. But there's also probably a, a great difference in terms of the kind of teleologies of these organizations. It seems very much that even though Amnesty gets embroiled in various Cold War struggles, I don't know if it's fair to say, but that there is a kind of uh, absence of an ultimate commitment to kind of an end goal in terms of a establishing a specific political regime necessarily or even eliciting very specific mm. kind of regime change so it's it's the focus is very much on protecting individuals it seems it's sort of well minimal involvement in politics in the way that one would know from the from the international red cross and sort of other kinds of organizations that operate in this gray zone between getting involved and not getting involved on particular sides or something. I think it's worth bearing in mind that amnesty was constantly evolving over time the the amnesty is set up by peter benenson was a particular initiative. Uh, no one knew how it was going to develop. He was he was as surprised as anyone when he was flooded with correspondence and people offering their their time. One, one thing I discovered, which I thought was very interesting, was that the thing that Amnesty is most famous for, which is these groups of volunteers, wasn't in the original plan. You know, it was an ad hoc response. The whole thing was made up as uh, as he went on. It was originally going to be a year long campaign. It was modelled on the. There had been a year for um, displaced persons and and that kind of thing, a, U, a UN year. So no one had any idea how it would go or what would happen. And they were delighted with the response, but also somewhat overwhelmed and had to then quickly find, as it were, activities for these people to get them involved. And all of this was was very new. And then, you know, you have this trouble period in Amnesty, which I've written about at some length when there was a crisis in 1966-7, when basically um, the, the organization uh, went through a series of crises, internal and external, as a result of which Peter Benenson left in 1967. And his role really ceased within the organization at that point. And then it moves into a different uh, era. Uh, and then, you know, you, you go through a whole series of phases. I mean, I think the one of the most important is the um, impact of the Greek colonel's coup in 1967, which comes just after uh, Benenson had left Amnesty. And the response there, which was, again, something that was somewhat ad hoc and stumbled into, was, you know, let's send a kind of uh, delegation to Greece that will actually spend time in Greece and really uh, find out what's happening there on the ground. And that's where they 
begin to take these uh, very um, traumatic um, witness statements about uh, torture. And that then becomes the basis, uh, as I was saying, steered through really by, Pete, by Eric Baker, comes the basis for a new phase in amnesty development, which is this focus that develops on, on torture, uh, culminating in the um, global campaign against torture that starts in December of 1973. In the 1980s, they, you know, amnesty, especially to develop the um, American amnesty, you know, takes a major interest in the death penalty, which it hadn't previously done. And I think it makes it quite hard then to say, well, amnesty is this or amnesty is that. I mean, the amnesty is, is many different things. I, I guess I would just say um, related to that as, as well, um, there are um, certain certain parallels that we can talk about. One of the things that, uh, as we've been mentioning that uh, you said in the intro, um, that Penn is obviously best known for, I would say, is that his founding of the colony of Pennsylvania, which he envisioned as a kind of haven for uh, those who were punished on behalf of conscience um, from not just England, but also um, across Europe. Um, this only comes about, though, because the effort to achieve toleration or protection for conscience in England is an abs- is sort of an utter failure. <laughs> I mean, there's simply uh, there are also, as I was saying a, a few moments ago, there are proposals submitted to Parliament, there are appeals made to the King, um, there are all sorts of schemes out there for for ending persecution and protecting conscience, um, and they all go pretty much uh, nowhere. And it, what makes it, I think, even a bit more challenging for a group like the Quakers is that, as we've been saying, it is uh, their their notion of conscience is grounded in in their theological beliefs, their religious beliefs. And so the, the liberty to gather for worship is sort of the most visible sign of injustice in their view. But it's not simply the only one. Um, for Quakers, are, uh, they want to be able to gather to meet for worship. They want to be able to preach. So there's a certain freedom of speech dimension to this. They want to be able to publish uh, defenses of themselves and, and explications of their own views. So there's a free press dimension to this. Um, they want to conduct their own marriages without um, established clergy. Um, they don't want to swear oaths in legal settings. And so there's a whole range of ways in which a particularly Quaker view um, challenges a lot of the kind of fundamental premises of the political and religious um, orthodoxy of the time. Um, so it's not surprising in some ways that a, that a, um, uh, a parliament dominated by, by Anglicans um, would not have any interest in, in, in accommodating Quakers. Um, so really it's at the end of the 1670s um, uh, when Penn starts to think about uh, some other, you know, sort of think outside the box a bit. And so it's at that point that he sort of starts to lay these plans and it's with, with great high hopes. There's a kind of utopian aspiration to it. Um, but he quickly discovers that um, it's much easier to theorize as a dissenter than it is to rule uh, as, a, as, a, as a governor of a, of a country, as a, as, a, as a governor of a colony, sorry. Um, and so that, that transition from uh, d- dissenter, um, marginalized dissenter in, in one place to ruling authority in the other, is, it's a fascinating story. But I can, I can give you the very short version, which is that um, he discovers that lots of people have different views. It gets back to what Tom was saying about the history of amnesty. Um, and he ends up um, 
at, like many colonial founders, deeply disappointed, frustrated, alienated from his settlers, um, and spending very little time actually in Pennsylvania um, as, as, as compared to England. I was just wondering to what extent Europe emerges sort of as an, as an alternative to either particular empires or nations or the kind of global international levels. And I'm thinking in particular of another figure uh, w with regards to amnesty. Um, and I don't know if that kind of connects to the prehistory of Penn's plans for a European parliament, but um, I'm thinking about Sean McBride, who was the, the sort of the disenchanted, uh, the politician was disenchanted with Irish domestic politics and then became international cham chairman of, of amnesty um, in, the, in the 60s. But he was also involved in signing uh, the early European Convention on Human Rights and various um, uh, documents on European economic cooperation. And sort of the European scale was kind of one of the levels at which he, he was involved. In. So I'm just wondering um, to what extent sort of Europe as an idea is, is at all relevant in in this story of, of dissent as a kind of alternative? I mean, well, McBride is a very important character in the story um, because he's one of the people who wrote to Benenson when he read the article and said, you know, can I, can I help? And Benenson was delighted because ben and, uh, McBride brought with him this tremendous, uh, you know, um, luster of having been the Irish foreign minister and, as you say, one of the signatories of the UN declaration. And so he really added... A, a major dimension immediately you know they they bring him on board as the chairman of the international executive committee of amnesty when that when that's set up um i mean it's interesting ultimately benenson and mcbride fall out um that's part of what this um the crisis i referred to is about and mcbride really triumphs i think mcbride was a much more accomplished uh, political <laughs> infighter than than benenson was and uh you know that that's so that does end you know that relationship ends perhaps rather Sadly, and, and then really McBride goes off. I mean, uh, to some extent, he's a European figure, but also he's a global figure, you know, and his, he plays a big role I mean, through the um, International Commission on Jurists and, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, international um, bodies, you know, uh, around the world. He gets the Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize in 74, which is three years before Amnesty gets the Nobel Peace Prize in 77. But... Uh, I think it's difficult to say how far Europe, because Europe itself, of course, was a very different space in the 60s and 70s than it, than it, than it is today, or indeed than it was five years ago. <laughs> you know, so, you know, at the time when amnesty starts, of course, Britain wasn't in the European economic community. And, um, you know, that's one of the issues amnesty has to resolve is, is how would membership uh, change matters? Um, well, I think this has been a really interesting conversation. And, and uh, it, it reminds me in some ways of the, of the way in which contemporary Quakers, like some of the folks that uh, Tom's been talking about involved in, in amnesty, they are in, in many ways um, remarkably different from early Quakers. And yet not entirely. I mean, the, the early Quakers uh, f uh, for whom Penn is, is our, as our great example, um, really did view themselves as as Christian, as fundamentally Christians, as as true Protestants. They understood their own kind of um, the ground of their commitments as deeply biblical in nature, um, and the idea of the conscience, as we said, as that of God in everyone. Quakerism today is is quite a different place, uh, philosophically, theologically. Uh, you ask uh, ten Quakers what the essence of Quakerism is, you get. 12 different answers. Um, and so, but I know from conversations with contemporary Quakers that they, that they see themselves very clearly as following in a long tradition of activism, uh, of dissent, 
of, 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 of advocacy for the protection of conscience, um, whether it's abolition, civil rights, um, peace testimony, anti-nuclear um, active, and so on, um, grounded on a notion of human dignity and kind of a vision of, uh, of, a, of a potential world in which people interacted in ways that aren't marked by violence and domination. And so the the, what we might say, the, the, the precepts or the, the fundamental underpinnings, the theology and philosophy of the group, I think is quite different. Um, but there is also a very clear line um, that connects these, these very different people over time. Yeah. Um, and I, I found Andrew's uh, comments very interesting. I was particularly struck to by the point about a, a European Parliament, and uh, in a way that uh, does sort of prefigure some of the ideas that Benenson had in that moment when he was almost kind of carried away with success and uh, was thinking in very similar terms. But in terms of final thoughts, I think what I'd like to emphasize would be, first of all, the way that Amnesty um, draws its, its origins from a very wide range of different networks and different sets of ideas and sort of manages to bring them all together so you've got you've got religious ideas but also you know political ideas elements of you might say you know social and cultural change of the early 60s there's a very rich mixture and what Benenson managed to do was to kind of put that all together and to produce what was I think a movement that was very much ahead of its time you know that was able to uh, galvanize um, often people who weren't wouldn't didn't think of themselves as particularly political. And I guess there has been the, the ability of Amnesty to evolve over time and to, to try and be true to its core principles, whilst at the same time constantly expanding its remit. So we don't necessarily want to draw any lessons or conclusions in that sense, but um, simply to, to thank you, our guests, Andrew Murphy and Tom Buchanan, and thanks for listening to another episode of International History Now. And just to end the program, let's listen to another song by Cy Grant. This is a lullaby originally from Haiti. Um, and uh, I just want to thank once again Cy Grant's family and the London Metropolitan Archives. Petit moi malar ma coli kai gong gong se melo. Petit moi malar ma coli kai gong gong se yong gong gong gong. Wasove la vi moi amise me yo. Sauvez la vie, moi, sauvez la vie, moi, amusez-moi.